0: You are listening to a podcast from West Hill United Church, located in Scarborough, Ontario, Canada. These podcasts are made possible by the generous support of our listeners, volunteers, and members of our community. To donate, go to our website, www.westhill.net, and click on the Canada Helps button, or go to www.westhill.net forward slash donate.
1: Good morning. morning. Lovely morning. We wish to acknowledge that we are on the territory of the Mississaugas of the New Credit First Nations lands, which lands were previously occupied by the Seneca and Huron-Wendat First Nations.
0: First of all, thank you, Vilma. But I'm just going to correct a a tiny bit of information there. We use music that that other people have written here. It isn't all uh, mine or or Gretta's and mine, Um, but thank you for the the comment. But we we use music from anywhere and everywhere that lifts up our values and and can be sung together. The only only um, guideline is that it has to be able to be sung by anyone. Well, actually that sounds like everyone has to be a good singer. No, you don't, not at all, not remotely, which is good because I sing along myself. Uh, secondly, I wanted to say, and they're going to be very embarrassed to hear, um, uh, John and Anne from Scotland, uh, they gave a celebration that I, I missed last time. They've been coming here whenever they visit Pickering or wherever their son is for five years now. That is why you recognize them every time they come. And I just wanted to send you back. Uh, and you're not back at all. You're, you're, you're always part of us. So I would just celebrate your your. Your presence among us. So now I take you to the, the island of Maui, where I've never been. Um, and I'm gonna ask you to send the, to put the first slide up there. Now, we're, I wanna, I've been thinking a lot about this guided by love, which is such a general term and it means so many things. But the next slide, it, it's gonna be hard to read. That is a, a map in Maui and the very thin line at the top, which you can barely see, is an amazingly difficult hike to a blowhole and a special thing that you're going to see here. It is a tremendously uh, taxing that takes you through hardly marked ro- uh, pathways, lava fields where you have to wear almost special shoes, you don't get cut and and amazing heights and and slippery rocks. And there's even a sign that you'll see that uh, says Says, be careful! Dry walk, rocks only. People have been uh, uh, injured on this walk, but it's got amazing views. And the reason I'm even telling you this is, I'm going to be playing the introduction to our sharing song. And by the time we finish the pictures, you'll know why I've chosen those those slides. Those pictures, I, I couldn't even credit anyone. I don't know who took the pictures. They're not. There was no credit there, but they're pictures along the walk and at the end sculpted by centuries of salt sea spray in the rock is a complete heart shape and people will go on this walk to see this heart-shaped hole in this very rocky coast and i thought isn't that a perfect image of being guided to and towards and by love and it isn't easy in some of the situations, in my workplace, and my in family and everything, sometimes it's a hard walk. But that, that guide that's always there, and then we'll move into the song. So I'm just gonna scroll those pictures um, by. And if you're thinking of someone that's, or some situations where it's hard for you to be respectful and compassionate in, then you know we're walking together on those very difficult paths.
1: This morning we have three readings. The first one is by Diane Setfield from The Thirteenth Tale, which is the first book she published. She is an English, a British novelist, um, and has written many novels. All morning I struggled with the sensation of stray wisps of one world seeping through the cracks of another. Do you know the feeling when you start reading a new book before the membrane of the last one has had time to close behind you? You leave the previous book with ideas and themes, characters even, caught in the fibers of your clothes. And when you open the new book, they are still with you. The second reading is by George Bernard Shaw. I think most of you are familiar with him. You're probably most familiar with the movie My Fair Lady, which is an adaptation in many ways from, of Pygmalion that he wrote. If you have an apple and I have an apple and we exchange these apples, then you and I will still each, one have, will still each have one apple. But if you have an idea and I have an idea and we exchange these ideas, then each of us will have two ideas. And the third reading, it's by John F. Kennedy. The great enemy of truth is very often not the lie, deliberate, contrived, and dishonest, but the myth, persistent, persuasive, and unrealistic. Too often we hold fast to the cliches of our forebears. We subject all facts to a prefabricated set of interpretations. We enjoy the comfort of opinion without the discomfort of thought. Offered as wisdom for the journey, may we walk in
2: its light. The theme that I um, decided today would be on uh, was about um, feeling an idea, breathing an idea is the way I wrote it down when I sent it to Annie. Uh, So the idea of that breath uh, and uh, feeling things that are not tangible uh, is what I hope to share with you today. But... That is clearly what came out in The Focus Moment, uh, which, as I began to write it, was about my mom. Um, Because since my mom's death, I have felt her more viscerally within me uh, than ever before, kind of like that idea that lingers on. I feel her presence inside me pouring its way out through the raising of my arm as I shift the shawl upon my shoulders. Sometimes I rise, cross the room, adjust the placement of some innocuous object, and sit down across from it again, pleased. Of course, that isn't me. It is her inside me. So often, I lift my mug of steaming coffee with two hands, the second hers. I feel a look cross my face. I know her more intimately in death than I ever did in life. Her features moving under mine. Her voice talking to me aloud through my own. We share one another in the two short days of our lives, rarely realizing the depth of that truth and the visceral structure of our lives. Until, on the long days without, we come back to one another within. Within. my mic on yeah Ah. Ah. it has it is true that i have felt my mom inside me so much uh since she died uh, in 2014 um and i feel myself doing things i talk aloud to myself when i'm at home alone uh all the time uh, and didn't used to do that certainly like that but I hear my mother doing that and chastising herself for something silly as I chastise myself uh, one of the lovely things uh, one of two lovely things that I've taken up uh, since I've been on vacation uh, is the piano um, the other uh, Glenn is the harmonica where's Glenn? Ah, yes where's Glenn yes we are going to share that one day um, I've got the first four bars of uh, Who's Largo? Dvorak Largo down on the harmonica, pretty good, eh? That's really all I can do with it. Um, Babette introduced me to the harmonica, and, and Scott is overseeing my progress in piano. It's going okay. <laughs> I did have to tell him to leave the room yesterday, so I couldn't continue. But anyway, those are all things that uh, those are things that that uh, bring something to us that we otherwise would never have uh, seen or heard. Like, what if music had never occurred in the world? No one had set up a drum beat, and no one had you know, put a reed between their lips and made a noise and decided that they could do it differently, or, or tapped a bowl and realized that that bowl filled with water didn't sound the same as this one with none, and decided to play out a little something on it. Music is something that uh, is not really there really. I mean, when it stops, it's gone. Uh, It's not a tangible thing that you can hold on to. And so music is kind of like an idea, which is what I want to talk to you about today and what we're going to talk about uh, when we, uh, those of you who stay behind so that we can carry on our conversation after uh, the, the gathering. And ideas are ephemeral as well. Uh, when I wrote down breathing an idea and sent it off to Annie, I hadn't really got my head around what exactly I meant by that. Uh, so as I started looking, uh, for material that brought that back together, the idea of ghosts, uh, came into being. And, and so I realized that what, what we had, what brought us together low those many years ago into, or millennia ago into tribal groups that uh, created behaviors that held them together uh, into uh, whole races that do different things, that developed differently because of where they lived, uh, to different cultures that uh, mold themselves with their behaviors and their choices. Uh, the things that we hand down are often not just our physical being, but the ghosts of those ideas and how they landed within a group of people and came to be the mark or a, a, an aspect of that people that was very real. So I had to go and figure out where that, I wondered, where did that idea, ghost of an idea, come from? Uh, and the place that it's most usually uh, associated with, and I didn't do the work to see if that was the first place i had ever been used, but is in the preface to A Christmas Carol by Charles Dickens. A Christmas Carol uh, is his uh, short novel, which many of you know, uh, in which he brings these ghosts of the past and the present and the future uh, to tell their tale of woe and so try to change someone's heart. But here's how he speaks of it in the preface. I have endeavored in this ghostly little book to raise the ghost of an idea which shall not put my readers out of humor with themselves, with each other with the season or with me may it haunt their houses pleasantly and no one wish to lay so dickens ghost of an idea came out of the tragedy of his uh, past i think uh, he was forced to leave school at a very young age when his father ended up in debtors prison his uh, mother and the younger children moved in to debtors prison with him And Charles was forced to work in a factory to be able to pay back the father's debt uh, so that he could, uh, the family could be freed again. But that factory is not the kind of punch your time clock, stand there and, you know, work on something, spray paint or something. It was a dreadful place where the children of uh, multitudes of people thrown into that, that prison had to labor away. There was very little uh, in terms of sustenance. There was always a risk of being uh, hurt or, or maimed by someone who was overseeing you. Uh, and that tragedy of that childhood is that ghost of an idea that Charles Dickens brought into uh, Dickensian England, uh, which was a tragic place for so many people at that time. And the telling of the story nowadays, when we have so much, when we feel so affluent compared to that, uh, continues to challenge our conscience because we know that there are places in the world where that same kind of uh, tragedy is lived out and we would eradicate it if we had uh, the idea or the ways of t- taking care of that. Liam Kalanon in his book, The Cloud Atlas, speaks about ghosts, says we are all ghosts. We all carry inside us people who came before us we have those stories of our of our families we have the genetics of course we have uh, you know I have I have genes apparently which are going to preclude me from ever getting a unibrow very fortunate and grateful for that um, no hair on my back either another genetic factor N- neither of my siblings have that either but Uh, So, we pass down a lot of traits genetically. My eyes are brown, as are most of my siblings. Um, And I, uh, Barb Russell has a grandson with bright blue eyes and both his parents are brown eyes. And brown being dominant, that blue is very extraordinary. Uh, He's an extraordinary kid. Uh, We get lots of uh, what we land in the world uh, in from the genetic makeup. But after that, things start to shift. We land in a family that has a certain way of doing things, who live uh, in a community or a culture that has another set of things. We learn to love the things that our families love and we learn to hate or disdain the things that our families disdain. And we find ways to create invisible uh, bubbles in which we live and we boing against other bubbles every now and then as we go through life. And sometimes uh, we might feel a little bit of breach in the pressure there, and something comes in, and we get a new idea. But our mannerisms and the ways that we live, and those are, many of them are handed down from our families and the cultures in which we live, of which one of them is religion. Uh, No one is born religious. You are born into a religious community or not. Uh, And if you are born into a religious community, you are generally provided the belief systems that guide that religious community. Uh, Whether it has supernatural beliefs, whether it has uh, an otherworldly place where one goes after they die, uh, whether it is um, a a cyclical uh, life understanding, uh, we are given those stories when we are born into a religious community. And sometimes those stories have helped strengthen our lives and made us wiser and stronger and given us the courage to do things we might not otherwise have done. And sometimes they have had the absolute opposite effect, uh, reminding us that we are nothing uh, and that we can't do anything without that religious uh, accoutrement uh, shielding us, helping us, giving us the next idea. And so religion uh, becomes a very, very significant human factor. Uh, it was uh, originally, um, when it came to this land, it was brutally imposed upon the indigenous peoples of Canada and of North America as uh, European religiosity was brought over the waves. I remember being extremely moved by the piece in um, uh, Joseph Boyden's The when they talk about uh, moving from one community to another. I'm sure many of you read the book Joseph uh, spoke here a few years ago. Uh, but in the story, uh, the tribe has uh, really worn out the land around their community. Uh, it takes a few years, but uh, the the game starts thinning out. Uh, they're not able to get as much to eat. And so they decide they have to move their community. And so everyone packs their stuff up and gets ready to go. And then they dig up their dead. They dig up every ancestor that has been buried in that uh, community, has been buried in that grave, and they literally carry them to their new community with them, digging a huge pit and lining it with beaver pelts and gently placing uh, the bones of their ancestors there so that they are with them all the time. Uh, We we place our dead in cemeteries with people they don't know and we have never met. Sometimes we shield them in a concrete sarcophagus so that the uh, poisonous fluid that we've injected into their veins so they wouldn't start to decompose before the, the visuals at the, at the funeral. Uh, and we leave them there and maybe go back and visit a, a, a beautiful quartz or marble headstone every now and then. But to put them on our back, and carry them to another community so that they were always with us. What a piece of work that would be and what an incredible sense of dedication to those who have gone before us. The things that we transferred into the new world uh, took hold here. And then uh, in the 19, early 1900s, uh, some of the denominations uh, began conversations about joining together because, hey, why should we fight over the population? Uh, and so uh, the conversations around the United Church of Canada came into being, uh, beginning with conversations with the Presbyterian Church and the Methodist Church and then uh, adding the, the Congregationalists who are a bunch of Anglicans who dissented from the Anglican uh, hierarchy, Uh, Those three groups started having a conversation about what a Protestant, a single, large Protestant denomination in Canada uh, could look like and what it would be like. And so over the course of a couple of decades, uh, they came up, they hammered out those things that would bring most of them into agreement. About half of the Presbyterians did not uh, come into union. And they brought to the fore this single, you know, huge Uh, denomination for Canada to be Canada's Protestant denomination. It happened at a time when the social gospel was vibrant and powerful. Uh, The social gospel was was a movement that captivated the hearts uh, primarily of Protestants because it looked at what was happening in the world as, as wealth was becoming centralized in the hands or becoming under the control of a smaller group of the captains of industry. And poverty uh, was being sucked uh, out of the middle class into those who had to work uh, day and night uh, for, that, uh, for the wealth of those who were achieving it. And so this disparity uh, didn't, it didn't seem to sync with some of the things that uh, religion was saying. And so the social gospel uh, arrived to talk about the kingdom of God not being something after worldly. I mean, if you're from a well-to-do family and, and you, know, you feel kind of badly telling the people who have to work seven days a week uh, that it's okay, you're going to go to heaven in the end. When you're living heaven on earth. And so that gospel brought the idea of the kingdom of God from some otherworldly place to right down here, and we are responsible for creating that wondrous kingdom here in the world. That social gospel was a profound shift uh, in Christianity. Of course, as it happened, Uh, because it undermined the idea of miracles or the idea of a salvific God, uh, sometimes even the idea of an interventionist God. Um, There's an entire arm of of, uh, Christianity, Protestantism, which grew up alongside it, and that's where fundamentalism came from, mostly in a backlash to the social gospel. That's where it got its going. Scott and I, uh, many of you know, Scott and I go to Chautauqua for about a week every year. And Chautauqua is an original Sunday school camp uh, where people would come and they'd learn about literature and the arts and science uh, and and religion. And they would be taught that so that they could go back and teach that to their Sunday schools. But their Sunday schools weren't Sunday schools like we're familiar with them. Their Sunday schools were the only opportunity for children to get any education at all because they worked six days of the week. Children didn't, uh, they didn't have the privilege of education during the week. And so the Sunday school was when they learned about botany and about um, Shakespeare and about uh, the religious, uh, different religions in the world and about their own Christianity. They learned that in their Sunday schools and that's the place where Scott and I go. And we learn about those various things as well uh, as we are there. But the religious belief uh, in Canada and the religious belief uh, that is taught uh, in United Church of Canada Theological Colleges, or has been, um, started to respond to the great uh, gap in uh, what Protestant religion was supposed to talk about uh, and what people were experiencing because they started talking about creating a united church I, around, in the early 1900s, 1905, 1908 is when the first, uh, the first, uh, formula for the doctrines of faith was presented as 1908, but it didn't actually amalgamate till 1925, and in between was this horror of the First World War, which was, was just a a horrific slaughter of men, an entire generation, uh, taken out as a result of that war. And so the stories, again, the idea of creating a kingdom of God on this world, that that's the idea, but really, are we capable of doing it? And so the questions and the examination of theology, which had started uh, in the late 19th century, went on like with a vengeance. And so by the time I went to theological college, we we were wrestling with concepts of God. We were never trying to deepen our relationship with a God. Uh, And we we read the Bible as a human construction and critiqued it because we had permission to do that. We could still kind of hold it as scripture, but most of us came through recognizing the fingerprints of power on those books and those stories. Power that was not supernatural, but came from the ideas of men predominantly, as far as we know. Uh, who were living in very real places with very real concerns and very real desires as to how those concerns should be met. So by the time I finished Theological College, the United Church of Canada was still a very highly social justice-oriented organization. But the ideas of Christianity had morphed so far that... Some would believe that they weren't even Christianity anymore. And indeed, the World Council of Churches has chastised us more than once for coming up with things that aren't strictly the way they're supposed to be. If any of you have had grandchildren baptized in the name of God, source of love, Jesus Christ, love incarnate, and the Holy Spirit, love's power, uh, that's that's one of the things that we had our hands slapped for, was playing with that formula and not doing it the way it was supposed to be done. So back to ideas and who we are as a community of faith and what it is that we have been doing uh, the congregation has a history that uh, goes back to sometime uh, in the early 1940s uh, in 1949 mrs kennedy of the kennedy rose family uh, who had agreed to allow a church to be built on this site uh, decided to to deed this site to the church um, she was off by about three months and deeded it after the congregation had joined the United Church of Canada. Otherwise, we'd owned it, free and clear. But somehow she was delayed and uh, handed it to the United Church of Canada. And this congregation has had a variety of leaders, uh, from those who would call themselves uh, traditional, like Chauncey McKay, uh, to those who were p- pressing uh, the envelope, pushing the envelope, like Fred Stiles, and those who were beyond belief in the in the actual uh, truth of Scripture, but found a truth in the liturgy and the, and the way that we gather together, and that's Bruce Sanguin, and then this community which decided to tear at all the different pieces of what Christianity should look like, and came up with a, with a, a formula for coming together in community that is different. Uh, from any other uh, United Church in Canada. On the Sunday morning, uh, we talk about and we experience, we share with one another uh, ideas. That's all we're doing. We don't, we don't hand out tracts. We don't uh, tell you things that you have to do to make your life different. But we give you ideas. And my hope is that most of those ideas are sticky, uh, like the, the reading from the 13th tale. They, by the time you leave the building, they're on your clothes. You can't really get rid of them, you know, like because it's there and you find yourself thinking about it on the way home or you're talking about it over lunch or the next time someone says something to you that is uh, actually denigrating a a group of people or agreeing with a status quo that is oppressive, your brain is going, wait a minute, I got something there I need to say. And it might not happen the first time. It might not happen the second time. But maybe the 20th time that person says something, you say, I don't agree. Because the ideas that have been shared by by Steve, by Scott, by John, the ideas that have been shared in this place are sticky. And you go home with them. And you can't get rid of them. And they work their magic on your mind. They insinuate themselves into your life. So we have created in this place, a place that is distinct and different from other places. I often um, think of the word word infiltrated, these ideas infiltrate you. um, But I think that's maybe uh, too hard a word. We need to come up with something that's a a little better than infiltrate. I'll work on that. Where we got to was uh, that place from that reading uh, from Kennedy. Uh, we got to the place where we recognized that the clichés of our forebearers were not good enough anymore. We don't just fall back on them. Those ideas that have been sticky are the ideas that often challenge the way things happen in your life, in our religion, uh, in the community beyond us. And the clichés of our forebears need to be addressed. Uh, lots of times we can avoid it. You know, it's just the way the world is, and we get to avoid it. But then the times when we have to challenge it uh, come to the fore. Our tumultuous relationship with the clichés of our forebearers started back in the 1970s when Fred Stiles was here, and it continued through the 1990s. Uh, Tom Gilchrist was more of a conservative leader and, and speaker. Uh, so maybe it hopscotched Tom's work. Uh, Tom's work was to bring the community together and he helped create uh, the building, uh, adding the wings on the building that have given us a different space in which we can work. But jumping from Fred to Bruce and then to this community that has gathered with me for 22 years, uh, the the challenges to the cliches of our forebears have been great. And the costs of them too have been great. We began that work in 2001, 2002, uh, when I kind of drop-kicked the idea that there is no supernatural theistic God, uh, and you took hold of it in a way that wanted to make sure that it was understood by anyone who would come and take my place in the future, any clergy who should I move on uh, would come, and so we galvanized it in the VisionWorks documents, as you know, uh, it got a little out of hand uh, between 2008-2010 uh, when we um, had had created a gathering that was so consistent with our VisionWorks document that the one thing that, gl- that was glaringly obvious uh, was removed uh, from the service at last. Uh, and then after that sort of chaotic time, we stabilized who we were in about 2011, 2012, 2013. Um, and things have stayed pretty much the same. The two uh, lines at the beginning of our words of commitment, uh, Scott added them after a conversation with, I hope you don't mind me sharing who it was, uh, with Doug Baker, who reflected to him that we talked about the world, we talk about the environment, we talk about those things almost every time we are here. They are so important to us, and there was nothing in the words of commitment that addressed that. And so Scott's Uh, introductory lines uh, are now part of those words for us, and I hope that they will become part of those words for the others who use them as well. But West Hill United Church, we've been through a lot in the last few years with my review, and one of the things that has been a, a dangerous byproduct of that review is that people think that West Hill is Greta Vosper, and you're not. You're West Hill. You're separate and distinct from me. And the beliefs that I carry are not the beliefs that you carry. And many of you have beliefs that are perfectly aligned with mine. But many of you think in different ways than I do. Many of you would express and speak about your faith in different words than I do. And so the difficulties of the last uh, few years, which were to uh, support Bangladeshi bloggers back in 2015 when they were being arrested and threatened with execution, that political choice that I made has ended up with West Hill with this, you know, sticker over top of it saying, Greta Vosper's church, not true. This is your church. You name it. You make it. You have the ideas that form it. It is your church. And that is the work that we're going to be about in the next little while. The people who speak about uh, our church, um, you people, when you speak about our church, you speak from different perspectives. There are those who have been on the board who will have a particular take on the way uh, that they see the church. Uh, As much as I want people to come on the board, I'm terrified that when they do, they'll hear about what the church is really like and think, oh, that's not what I thought we were doing. We're doing that. It's just that we're deeper into the guts of the machine, uh, working on that stuff and struggling with uh, ways to grease it up and make it work a little better. Uh, so getting your hands involved in that work changes the way you think about the church, obviously. If you're part of one of those social groups that gathers like the labyrinth walkers or the crafty ladies or the men's group, uh, you'll, you'll talk about the church in, a different, in different ways from one another. Uh, we we know the church differently. And those who are here simply on Sundays, you have a different way of talking about the church too. And all of you filter it through those ideas that form who you are to begin with before you ever even walk into this place. So we have lots that we must do and lots of ways to speak about ourselves. If you've ever done any kind of entrepreneur training or you're getting a business off the off the ground and you go and you and you take a course on it or something uh, and you know you're going to have to ask people for support and help they tell you to come up with your elevator speech you know what an elevator speech is it's what you get to say if someone shows the least little bit of interest in what you're doing and you think they may become a supporter or even a benefactor or you know something better Um, you've got an elevator speech that you can give them, which is no longer than 20 seconds. You have to tell them about what it is you do in less than 20 seconds. Uh, I don't do that. Um, I I think some of you know that when I, long ago, uh, if I would travel and people would say, oh, so what do you do? I would say, I'm in a large public relations uh, firm uh, out of the Middle East, and and they wouldn't ask anything else. Right. Because I'd learned that if I said, oh, I'm a minister, oh, my goodness, it's like saying you're a teacher and hearing every terrible story about every terrible teacher you ever had. Right. So I stopped saying that and the public relations thing works well, except it's not grounded in the Middle East anymore, (laughs) at least mine isn't. so I want you to think about your elevator elevator speech for West Hill. What would be your elevator speech about this place and why you come here? And whether it's, you know, something that you think you'll have for the rest of your life or if you're just passing through. What would it, what would it be that you would say to someone about the community that gathers in here? About the way we are with one another? about what we do when we get out of these seats and we just go and relax in the lounge, or what it is we do when we ask Rick Miller to come and get up on the stage and get us all up there dancing. What's that elevator speech that could capture all of that? And a little bit of the Greta Vosper stuff, but all of that so you could give it to someone else. That's an important piece of work making up that elevator speech and honing it so that you've got it perfect. And I'm hoping that over the next few days, uh, through the conversation that we have, uh, being together today after we finish the gathering and the conversations we have amongst ourselves when that time is finished and the gathering uh, that comes together on Tuesday. And if you're not gone away, I want you here Um, But the gathering that will take place on Tuesday that will help define uh, what some of the future looks like, it will still be an idea. It still won't be tangible. But it will be something that we can move into and grow into uh, in whatever way we choose to do. But coming up with that elevator speech won't just be telling people about what West Hill is as a congregation or what we do It'll tell people about who you are and about who we are and about how we want to see ourselves and how we can take that out boldly into tomorrow. So I invite you to do that, to write that elevator speech, maybe not before, you know, we come back in here for coffee, but maybe for Tuesday. And I want want us to be bold about them, Um, Your elevator speech may be something that you don't want to share with anyone. It's not an elevator speech, if that's what you've come up with. An elevator speech is something you will share with other people. So we need to be bold enough to write our truths out in that 20-second statement. We are an idea. That's all we are. We're an idea that we get to share with one another. We're an idea that we get to share with the world around us. We're an idea that we can take back and share with our families. We are an idea, but it is an amazing idea. Thank you. it feels like when you get an idea it feels like almost catching your breath your it's your brain catching its breath (gasps) there's something you know what it feels like when you fall in love it's like your your heart catches its breath and you know what it feels like to be in a room where those things are thrumming uh, in the hearts and in the minds of everyone there it feels like magic. It feels like the ghosts of those ideas are with us, moving us and challenging us, enlightening us, and illuminating us. Go with those ideas. Go with those ghosts. And find your place in a world that might not recognize them, may not welcome them, but definitely needs them. Go to that world in peace. Love will
0: guide us love will use. been listening to a podcast from West Hill United Church located in Scarborough, Ontario, Canada. These podcasts are made possible by the generous support of our listeners, volunteers, and members of our community. To donate, go to our website, www.westhill.net, and click on the
1: Canada Helps button, or go to www.westhill.net forward slash donate.